1: You are listening to Pretty Much Pop, a Culture Podcast. This is our very first attempt at this, focusing on the questions of what pop culture is in the internet age and whether distinguishing pop culture from high culture makes any sense. I'm Mark Linsenmeyer. I'll be your recovering philosopher for the evening.
2: I'm Erica Spires, actor, musician, and binge watcher.
3: I'm Brian Hurt, and I'm a heavy user of science fiction. Plus, I dabble in a lot of other things.
1: We are also joined this evening, we have on hand our engineer,
4: Tyler Hislop. Hello, hello, I'm Tyler Hislop. I engineer a lot of audio and play a lot of video games.
1: <laughs> yes. So is there popular culture
3: anymore? Way to start with the yes, no question, Mark. Let's just answer this and be done. What's
1: your answer? Maybe. Should I explain why that is a question even? Sure, why is that even a question? So, I mean, of course, there's things we point to and say this is popular culture. The point is, you know, there is no single populace. We've been all connected. There's the whole international scene. Is K-pop part of my popular culture? (laughs) I don't know. Some people think so. There's, of course, different directions of interest. Do we have to talk about sports if we're talking about popular culture? That sure as hell is in the popular culture, but it's not on the entertainment pages, etc., And just the fragmentation. It seems like even the most poppy pop stuff is some kind of niche interest. And maybe that's because I'm old and just out of touch with things. So that's my rationale. Erica, what do you say?
2: I think there is. What exactly it is, it's hard to say. If we're going from the definition of popular culture is something, what would you say? That it's mass distributed, something that's easily accessible by a large group of people?
1: Which is everything.
2: That's a question.
1: (laughs) I guess that's part of the problem is because it's everything is like that now. If you're into opera and you're into some weird kind of manga, the procedures for getting into those things are probably the same for most people.
3: I think being accessible is a minimum, but it is not
1: sufficient to be pop culture.
2: Not anymore, right? Not since the internet.
1: Do you have to be dumb to be pop culture? Is that what defines the thing that are, it's for the masses,
2: I don't think so. Based on the articles that we've been reading and and the research we've been doing, I I definitely don't think that pop culture means it has to be dumb.
1: So do you want to get us started on that? If you're gonna draw from something at length, go ahead and cite it. Tell us who it's by, tell us we'll link to them all from the show notes.
2: Yes. One of the things we wanted to talk about today is highbrow and lowbrow culture, right? Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to find out what exactly that means and where it comes from. I like the etymology of it, right? So Unfortunately, highbrow and lowbrow culture, it's a very fraught term. What I found, it comes from phrenology. So, oh um, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Gross>.
3: <laughs> go on.
2: <laughs> exactly, right? So, lowbrow, kind of simian, right? The idea that your head shape has to do with your intellect. So, if you're highbrow, you're supposed to be into things that are intellectual, and lowbrow is the opposite. So unfortunately that has a lot of like terrible racist pseudoscience attached to it. So I thought it was just important to point that out that we know that these are fraught terms but we're still using them because they're terms that we all understand, right? And we all have our ideas.
1: And if one's hairline recedes, does that mean one's brow is technically lower because
2: Yes, the older you get the more low brow I think, <laughs> right?
3: As your hair changes, <laughs> your skull shape changes, Mark. Yes, way to demonstrate your knowledge. <laughs> nice.
2: Uh, I found that through an article, Brain Pickings. But one of the articles, and maybe I'm not the best one to talk about this at length, was The Long War Between Highbrow and Lowbrow from the Pacific Standard by Noah Berlatsky.
3: This article just brings some facts to what I think is something that's often just a throwaway comment about how Shakespeare was pop culture in his day. And for whatever reason, the bard is always dragged out of the example of what constitutes something that is not lowbrow culture or something that is naturally a uh, higher form of art than things such as, and this article references, the Avengers and, I guess, comic book movies in general. But it's definitely more nuanced looking back at how Shakespeare was consumed in the 1800s and the fact that there was even low and high forms of Shakespeare Back in the day, it's worth looking at, I mean, to get to Mark's earlier question of, can there still be pop culture? I guess the question goes back to, was there ever pop culture? I mean, the world is more connected now than it was even back when everyone was watching MASH back in the 1970s and early 80s. Shakespeare was something that at least was able to cross the ocean and be really prevalent in both Europe and the United States and in translation around Europe and around the world. Just because Shakespeare was popular doesn't mean that he was consumed in precisely the same way. I did enjoy hearing about, I shouldn't say I enjoyed hearing about people killing each other, but I did enjoy learning that people actually would riot. Actors were throwing bricks at each other. Erica, you're an actor. I imagine you've thrown a fair amount of bricks at your contemporaries. Tell us all about your last brick fight.
2: (laughs) Well, you know what? That reminds me actually of when the Rite of Spring was premiered, right? And people rioted when that premiered. Same idea.
1: Remind me, was it because it was too dissonant? What was wrong with it?
2: Yeah, I believe that was why. That was during the time when they were really trying to veer away, you know, it's all like this pendulum. So music had gotten really gorgeous and beautiful. And so people started making it a little more avant-garde and, well, a lot more in this case. So yeah, people found it to actually be upsetting, not just the music, but also the subject matter and the dancing. And it was too provocative and the story was too sexual. So people got very upset about that as well.
1: That's a funny combination of things because the too sexual sounds like it's the upper snooty class is saying, you're appealing to baser instincts. And I object to that, but the too dissonant is the...
2: (laughs) I guess you're right. So it is a different kind of idea, but it still is... Both examples kind of remind me of each other in that anything that's trying to say something... Get people real riled up on one side or the other.
3: Well, that's why I've never riled anyone up in my whole life. So that's good.
2: (laughs) That article is interesting. I was trying to read it not from a place of, I want to agree with this person or another person, right? Because that's immediately so easy to do in pop culture, in the way we receive information these days, is to look at something and immediately look to someone to agree with us. So... I immediately took umbrage with one of the things that was said about Guardians of the Galaxy. It says, Guardians like tells us by every frame that we are the only human in the world, and that that's a negative thing.
1: Are you objecting to the analysis of Guardians as saying that, or are you objecting to that as being a negative thing?
2: (laughs) I'm objecting to it as saying that. (laughs) Okay. I mean, first of all, he's not fully human, spoiler alert. But also, to me, Guardians tells us how to create a a family, how to create a unit out of other beings who are unlike ourselves, very much in the way that Star Trek would. So to me, even though it's a very popular movie, it's got a deeper meaning.
1: So it seems like it's a similar thing to the Shakespeare in that If you can present the same piece of literature as in Shakespeare, The Throwing Bricks was about different theater troupes that were presenting it, sort of emphasizing different points. That the traditionalists, the folks who were seeing Shakespeare as a great philosopher and were giving sort of mellow performances versus those that were emphasizing the melodramatic points and appealing to a wider audience, appealing to baser instincts. And both those things are packed in there. And so I think it's the same thing with I don't want to say any art, but quite a lot of art, any art that is taken seriously by reasonably smart people but yet is also wildly popular, there has to be things that appeal on both levels. Is that the solution? Is that why high and low art are not so distinguishable, or history has taken us now so that there's a need. Because even if you make people cheer, even if you, by appealing to the lowest common denominator, you have to deal in this universe with an infinity of online critics <laughs> that will then take you down. So it's almost becomes necessary to market something to a mass audience, I would say. Not any mass audience, but a really mass audience to have it be smart enough you know, to satisfy the critics enough so it will not get uniformly trashed and thus lower your Rotten Tomatoes rating and lower overall sales.
3: I think that's in large part true, but there are still some counterexamples that come to mind where I think there really are no defenders that are still wildly popular. Is it too early to start picking on things? And I really, really don't like to pick on something I haven't read. But just from having sampled a little bit of... Fifty Shades of Grey, which I understood to be fan fiction, is that was written to be for the Twilight saga, someone who was writing in that universe. And it's generally regarded kind of as softcore pornography or just comfort reading for sexually frustrated women to kind of pigeonhole it, is what it's said to be. But it's been made into movies and it is really popular. I have not been able to bring myself to consume it, so I'm not really in a position to say for sure whether it does have an angle where someone could look at it. And maybe there is some feminist subtext where someone could defend it and say, no, it really has either social value or artistic value. And if that's not the right example, I'm sure there's got to be something out there. But generally, Mark, I think you're probably right that most things that are wildly popular, there is some subset of the audience who thinks that there is a deeper or more artistic level to it that they could wax and like about it and just go to
1: Reddit and you'll find them.
2: Truth. Yeah. There's a place for everybody on Reddit.
1: I was almost thinking of calling this podcast, not the target audience, <laughs> because <laughs> though I'm hoping that's not going to sum up most of the topics that we would talk about, I tend to feel like anything that there's a significant contingent of people that are excited about, there's something redeeming about it. It would probably enrich my life if I were to discover what that is. And I'm also very loath to, like you were saying, Brian, like, even if you embrace some things that are low culture, you know, that I might embrace comic book movies or fantasy or sci-fi, this so-called genre fiction, there are always going to be other things. Like, for me, it's reality TV or, you know, specific kinds of reality TV, The Real Housewives, which, of course, I've never watched an episode of. It's more just like the very idea of it or the five seconds I've seen here or there or it's similar to other things that I have witnessed. It makes me want to say, oh, that is really mindless. That is, really has nothing to defend it. But I'm so sensitive that, like, no, I'm not the target audience. There's probably something going on here. Perhaps it's comparable to what is going on when I watch like a really dumb horror movie, but yet, you know, that I get enough out of it that it fulfills some hole in my brain, that there's probably something comparable going on to this other audience that I shouldn't be so obnoxious as to just to dismiss.
2: Right. The stuff that seems obviously lowbrow to me, it just seems like too easy of a target, right? It feels kind of (laughs) mean sometimes. Like the Real Housewives stuff. Also, I'm with you. Maybe when it first came out, I may have watched a couple of episodes, but What we know from reality TV now is that a lot of it's scripted. They're put in situations that they know are going to happen, and they're just kind of told to go. So at the same time, most of them are not actors, so you can't really give it the artistic points, right? But somebody in there is making a compelling story clearly because they've been on for multiple seasons and have spawned similar shows.
1: Yeah, it's the editors, but it's that kind of editing. Like, that's why I can see like five seconds of something and like, oh no, this is making me physically ill. Because it's like that <laughs> fast-paced editing with the do do do, do, do you know, the, with the goofy <laughs> music and the quick, I don't know. Is this pleasing someone? Because it is not calibrated to my sensibilities.
2: <laughs> Are we still on there? Is a, there a pop culture? I just want to make sure. We've talked about a lot.
1: I think we merged into the second question of high versus low. We're there. This is the whole content of what? <laughs> what i had in our plate today
3: <laughs> or if there is pop culture how do you define it if we go with the premise that it exists otherwise yeah great podcast good idea mark <laughs> so let's go with the idea that there is and throw out a definition that works for you
2: all right oxford english dictionary <laughs> here we go culture based on the tastes of ordinary people rather than an educated elite Well, then what is educated elite? Who knows how many degrees you have to have to be considered that?
3: And does any degree from this
1: side of the pound count for the Oxford English Dictionary? Quite possibly not. Tell me what do you think the connection between this education versus not education and just being juvenile versus being adult?
2: Oh, man.
1: Certainly a lot of juvenile material you would say is not suitable for kids, but it might be the kind of thing that, you know, 13-year-old boys, our movies were aimed at at least when I was growing up, were aimed at 13-year-old boys. All those crappy 80s sex comedies and horror oh, yeah. movies that Brian and I would rent when we were 13, those were not aimed at adults. Is it being juvenile, or is that equating adult, uneducated people with juveniles?
3: It's appealing to the juvenile nature that we all have. We're adults, but the same same things don't appeal to us all the time, right? And sometimes we maybe are in the mood for something that has high artistic value that isn't that enjoyable and other times we just want to kick back and enjoy something and the more juvenile the better and maybe it's based on mood or based on other things
2: so this actually reminds me of this is a new article just came out May 25th, Pop Culture's Progress Toward Tragedy by Titus Teixeira about the juvenile aspect and if that's a positive or negative thing and about growing up and what that teaches us What can pop culture teach us, or can it teach us, about growing up and getting rid of a fantasy and learning something that helps us go through life? In this particular article, it's talking about a Shakespearean expert named Paul Cantor, and he compares classics to contemporary entertainment. He believes that Americans should admire tragic heroes and talks about a lot of the tragic stories that we have on television now, Game of Thrones all the zombie movies that have been coming out for years, Breaking Bad. He's telling us that pop culture is dealing with these very serious issues that are real world and the loss of the American dream. And maybe it's teaching us how to handle that. He says, we may act like beasts to rise above our stations. And we're seeing value in these tragic heroes.
1: That certainly could be one of the aspects of adult specific literature that Kids are never going to be satisfied with the hero not winning. (laughs) You just can't have that. Or at least that was my experience. The first time I read, I don't remember what the story was, but the first time I ran into something like that, it's just like, no, that's wrong. That doesn't work.
2: I used to think that too, but I have a 10-year-old nephew who is really upset about, uh, he gets really upset in some of the superhero movies because he finds the villains to be much more compelling (laughs) than the good guys. And he's like, yeah, I kind of wish, like, he goes, why do the bad guys always have to lose? that makes me really upset. Like, I understand their plight. And I'm like, wow, he's way beyond where I was when I was 10 years old.
3: Villains are awesome. The American Film Institute, among their many hundred lists, I believe it was the hundred best villains and heroes. I think it was 50 of each. And I remember who all the villains were because they're awesome. And it's Hannibal (laughs) Lecter and Darth Vader and Hans Gruber and I couldn't tell you who the heroes are. I mean, who cares? We're the stand-ins for them, so we don't need to remember them quite the same way. I don't really want to be Hans Gruber, but man, is he badass. That seems a base
1: sort of delight in somebody being a badass. Is it juvenile?
2: (laughs) At least this article is not saying that it is. It's saying that being, well, being a badass, I guess that's different than being a tragic hero, right?
1: Maybe, or it can be. I don't think Hans
2: Gruber is the tragic hero of
1: diehard movies, right? Well, no,
2: true. He's not.
3: (laughs) Having an appealing villain lets you put yourself in the shoes of someone that you really don't want to be at a moral level and walk two hours in their shoes for a movie, and then hopefully reject it. So you can, I think, at your juvenile or your base enjoyment level, get a kick out of being this supervillain, and at the end realize, yeah, it's John McClane is the person you should aspire to be. He's flawed, but he's ultimately the good guy. Unless you aspire to be the cameraman, which someone watched that movie and was rooting for him. (laughs) The fat cop. By the way, that article does also hit on Shakespeare. And man, what is it with Shakespeare in discussions of culture? There's a line in the article that reads, Nobody making films or TV now is as good as Shakespeare, Cantor admits, but they're not nothing either. And I really bristle at that idea that nobody is as good as Shakespeare. I think we're too close to everything right now <laughs> to a judge where we are.
2: Of course, yeah.
3: So Cantor loses a little bit of his glow that the author of the article is giving him. But in any case, every article has to have Shakespeare in it, I guess. Judging from two data points— They all do.
2: Can't we then say Shakespeare is pop culture, is part of pop culture? If we all are quoting even if we're not quoting Shakespeare, we're talking about Shakespeare still. And for how many years have we been comparing everything to Shakespeare? Even if you don't know much about Shakespeare, you know who he is, you know some of the plays.
3: I think so, yes. And that really gets to my definition of pop culture, and it's totally empirical because I don't have any good basis for it. But if it's some cultural phenomenon that my mother-in-law in her 70s has heard of and my nephew who's a teenager has heard of if they both know it then it's got to be pop culture and actually there are some things that probably are pop culture that they haven't both heard of as well but if they both have yeah I think my mother-in-law in her 70s has heard of Fortnite so that that's <laughs> not most video games but that's one right it's on the evening right, news and right. she watches the evening news so there you go
2: Um, I like that definition.
3: I've watched my nephew play it, and he asked if I wanted to, and I was sure I didn't. So I guess I'm closer to her than him on that one.
1: It'll be interesting to see if Fortnite is canonized then. That seems to be a concept that we haven't hit on yet, that what characterizes high culture is not just that it's academic and difficult to get a handle on. I mean, there's anything that involves a foreign language or a long-ago historical period you would need some sort of scholarship to understand properly. It's not clear to me that that automatically makes it higher culture, right? It could, in fact, be lower culture just in another culture. (laughs) And so it takes education to get a handle on it because it's not your culture. You need some entry point. So just introduce a couple hundred years and you've got that. What makes people focus on Shakespeare or folks like this is that they are so lionized, that they are so canonized, that there's something that has stood the test of time. Just because it stands the test of time, then it's high culture. So we don't know what's high culture at the time. In other words, Fortnite could be something that will be lauded forevermore as something to aspire to. <laughs>
2: <laughs> How about Black Ops, that Call of Duty? That's what my husband is playing as we are recording this.
4: <laughs> Tyler, way in here. What... what? <laughs> Whether or not something maintains popularity through longevity, you have to be in the future to determine that. But certainly the local, the proximal impact of something like a Fortnite or a Game of Thrones or something like that, that drives culture. So the entirety of of the cultural milieu shifts as a result. Is it game-changing? Is it industry-changing? I think that has a lot to do with it as well. If it's going to inspire content creators to right on the coattails of successful artistic endeavors, that in and of itself extends the potential toward longevity. Whether it needs to be hyper-popular as far as quantity, I think that's the question. There are undoubtedly gems of artistic value that no one's ever seen or heard of. Maybe they will become viral at some point, and the internet gives that a possibility. Now, Fortnite, that is a time-and-place kind of phenomenon. The internet and all of the technologies that have arisen made that possible. So art and culture and entertainment is driven by access. And it just so happens that Fortnite found itself in the right place at the right time. I don't know whether or not that will stand the test of time, but certainly it very well could. And I I think it brings to the fore another distinction between art and entertainment. If something is very entertaining and as a result lasts a 100,000 years and we can determine that it might not be artistic in the same way as a Picasso painting the distinction becomes rather blurry at that point.
2: Tyler, that makes me think actually was thinking of this the other day. I had a weird weekend. So, Friday night I went to an avant-garde lab of an opera, a new opera. Saturday night I saw Glenn Hansard, and today I went to Trivia Cup finals. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Because I feel like I kind of, in my head, ran the gamut of things. And it made me wonder, like, I enjoyed sitting through that opera. It was very different. I loved the puppetry it used. The story was interesting, but also odd. And, you know, it just made you get out of the type of storytelling that we normally get. And I do like that. But then I thought to myself, sometimes I'll sit through an opera. And I'll be like, oh, I shouldn't be bored. I'm really embarrassed that I'm bored. Maybe I'm not smart enough to get this. But then I thought... Do we think sometimes something's highbrow? Is it highbrow or is it just maybe boring? What's the difference?
4: A smart person could extract deeper meaning out of anything. Whether it's BS or not, that's a question. The responsibility is on the creator to create avenues for that deeper meaning to be extracted.
3: I think a lot of it has to do with how much preparatory work or education or information you need in advance In order to appreciate something, I remember going to the Art Institute of Chicago in high school, and Mark and I were in some Spanish classes together. And I would like go to see like one painting after the next and it meant nothing, these Dutch masters, whatever. And then I'd come across something we had studied in Spanish class at length, and all of a sudden I'd get really interested in it because we had learned about this technique and Velazquez was doing this and chiaroscuro, whatever. And so it went from I was actually kind of thrilled to see something up close that I had studied in books and in class, because I was I had been prepared for it. Were those operas in a language you know? Were you just hearing people singing? words that you can appreciate or maybe you were reading it on the on the back but it, you weren't getting the same impact
2: or maybe it was a bad performance of a good opera that's also possible my brother is an opera singer we talk about this kind of stuff a lot he'll straight out tell me if like ah, this was you know this was directed poorly or this is a great opera or this person wasn't quite on tonight and i just think it's interesting because kind of like tyler was saying it kind of depends who's beholding it and what they're getting from it I also play the fiddle. I was at this thing called the Fiddler's Green years ago. And I play the violin as well.
1: But those are the same instrument.
2: What? They <laughs> <we laughs> are the same instrument. People ask me that all the time. There were all these tents and people playing, like you know, different bands were playing, sometimes it was just a jam session, and I remember somebody asking, "What's the difference between fiddle music and violin music?" And somebody who was presenting that afternoon said, oh, you know, violins, all that slow music. And I was like, no, it's not. Also, to what you were saying, Brian, what we consider to be boring or slow, it can be about the performance or just about how we understand that subject.
1: So much is about calibrating your expectations, calibrating your habits of experiencing whatever the work is. I was talking about this with somebody about the Beatles today, that it seemed like the Beatles, oh, you know, they've been canonized, they've been around long enough, (laughs) they've been raised to the heights of artistic, but they're yet, they're so accessible and maybe some of that is because we got to go on the journey with them, that it's, she loves you, yeah, 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 is the most accessible, but once you kind of get a hold of that, then you can go as these men grew older and slightly more mature and more personal and you can get into their psychedelic stuff even if you don't take the mushrooms along with them and so you can attain these where you get close. I don't know if anybody really follows them into revolution number nine, but you can get (laughs) close to to the Yoko Ono area of avant-garde art. And so that's a great invitation in. I know there's going to be a time, and maybe it's already the time for really young people, where sensibilities are not going to be attuned to what made that immediately accessible. We're just used to music. Maybe the young people now that it's it has to be much harder edged. It has to have a hip hop beat. It has to have something that to then appreciate the Beatles, you got to just mellow out. You've got to do something to adjust. And I sort of see something comparable to like why was opera so gripping to even presumably uneducated audiences back then is because, well, that's what the convention was. That's what they were used to. And we've now been besieged by three minute pop songs and just short attention span everything. So that would take quite a few intervening steps to really like become a good opera listener.
2: Absolutely. So how do you make a highbrow meme? That's what I want to know.
3: Mark, I got to add to the Beatles part a little bit. Are we allowed to spoil a movie that hasn't come out yet? Is that <laughs> is that possible? I'm doing it. I hope you should. Wait,
2: are you talking about the new one where he's like, nobody has heard the Beatles...
3: Right, the movie I'm talking about is called Yesterday and it's directed by Danny Boyle who is a quite accomplished director and the whole premise of this movie is there's this global blackout and the struggling songwriter hits his head and he wakes up in the morning and he knows all the Beatles songs but the world doesn't and the Beatles have never existed. I mean, this is in the two minute trailer so sorry everybody, but here we go. He rises to fame and people are just wowed that every song that comes off his lips is just one gem after another. Two things really defy logic for me. One of them is it's still set in our world otherwise. And I don't know that our music is what it is without the Beatles having been there in the first place. But more to your point, Mark, I'm not sure people would be wowed by these Beatles songs if they just came out today where we are musically. I I think. When I hear a stirring performance of Hey Jude, I mean a lot of that goes back to what I know from growing up with music, and I don't have the same musical background. I'm guessing when it comes to music, I have the least to go on among the four of us on this discussion. I don't know that much about you, Eric, but I know Mark and Tyler are both more educated and experienced with music than I am.
1: Erica is way more experienced, <laughs> educated, experienced probably than I am. So, me from what I know, right it, regarding music, it
2: depends. No, one de- just You know, I think it depends on the type of music. You do a music podcast. I, I right. don't keep up with new stuff nearly as well as you were in
1: classical music school,
2: right? That I did do. Yes. Okay, there you go. I do have a degree.
1: <laughs> so there you go. You are closer to the uh, the canon, which is by definition, better and richer and you know more than from having listened to a bunch of indie artists and then analyze them. That is the prejudice I was just expressing in lauding you based on very little information.
3: I think we just established that I'm actually most qualified to judge pop culture being the least informed when it comes to these things. We're going to find that anybody most outside of their area.
2: That's what I'm banking on on this podcast. What are you talking about? (laughs)
1: So I also wonder in that in the Beatles scenario you outline, I think in trying to say oh the what's popular is really just as good as things in the canon, and that things in the canon are where they are because they're so good is this notion of social Darwinism that I really object to as a creator because I just see it so obviously that you know there's so many unheralded geniuses that I have run across, excluding yes. even myself. I'm not even talking about me and <laughs> and the fact that nobody buys my freaking albums, but, you know, beyond that. All right. So who had 38 minutes on that one? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. So if, if somebody just were to start singing Beatles songs, putting aside the concerns you were raising of, you know, would the world be ready for them or are the conditions right? I think there are people that are producing Beatles quality songs and don't gain traction and people find it very hard to believe that but like i can point to several of them that i've interviewed
2: yeah i agree with you on this mark i think it's hard to say because the beatles are the beatles but yeah i've run across a number of things like that where i thought a band like radiohead for example i was like oh in you know the 90s and 2000s like radiohead changed music or at least music videos right but then i met people more recently who didn't grow up with radiohead there was a whole area in england that they were oasis fans instead of radiohead fans right Or people who were just listening to something completely different and they didn't get the Radiohead education. So, I mean, you could make the case that a lot of other bands were influenced by Radiohead and they may have heard those bands, but...
4: I wonder how much of this, whether or not something is high or low culture. I mean, I think it's entirely dependent upon the educational apparatus. If academia touts whatever is canonical, that's going to reach a certain subset of individuals and maybe therefore stand the test of time. But also people are educated by just the sheer nature of a cultural movement. And the internet makes that information readily accessible.
2: Also, I guess we have for so many years, what has been considered highbrow has been white European, right? So we're clouded in that way. Our judgment is all clouded because of that. Our All of our educations probably today are lacking because of the way we are, we are taught history, music history included.
1: Right. So that's where this whole thing with the canon becomes very acute and very... When somebody argues, I want to add these people of color to the canon, are you arguing that those works are just as good as what's in the canon? Or are you arguing ultimately that the whole idea of a canon is bull? <laughs> like, it seems... Like, you'd want to take the second step. What you just said, Erica, makes me think that, like, no, we're on a corrupt foundation.
3: Or if it's not bull, it's at least incidental or accidental. It could have been any other equally good set of things that formed our canon. But these were the ones that happened to have traction based on cultural reasons and social
4: forces. If there's one example of a piece of art being left off the supposed canon, just one, I think. That might render the canon inconsequential if the cultural milieu misses one work of genius that's out there.
3: Tyler
1: has also killed the podcast. Ooh, <laughs> <All> right, let's <laughs> see if we can all do it. <laughs> well, I think we're in the home stretch here. We feel guilty. We feel like we should appreciate opera, right? Because we've been told by the educational establishment that that is highbrow, and I want to understand culture. I'm not sure you get that. Again, if you're arguing, I want to have less white males in the canon, you could argue that based on a work of particularly high literary merit as judged by experts in the field, right? Or you could say, you know, these things that even just the whole academic structure is somehow corrupt. It's a matter of fitting the interests of minorities, you know, making them play Uncle Tom, making them play by the master's rules. And that's what gets the art critics to say, this is great, that Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man is great because it already fulfills the standards that were set up with regard to these other works. And actually, what we should be looking at is the work of these rappers who, you know, they don't even write. They don't play by the rules or something, you know, that they just completely trying to get rid of the standards themselves. I feel like both of those avenues are worth exploring. <laughs> I'm not willing to go so far as the uh, complete democratization of, you know, there's just stuff people like. I mean, clearly there's things that engage more of your brain than other things. <laughs> it's just that I think there's so many dimensions upon which that can happen, so many different things that can stand in the way of you appreciating something, right? As in the case of this is drinking music, but it's drinking music. For 17th century Russia, so only a scholar is going to be able to understand this music that is appealing to gut level sensibilities. And so I think just once you have that idea that the way in which the brain is engaged is so multifaceted, you know, it's nice that people have have suggestions that are the canon. It's nice that we can kind of use these as a starting point. That it's nice that we don't yet have a complete breakdown of common points of recognition that at least everybody's heard of Shakespeare as something to build off of. I I don't know. Is there a value to having those common points of reference? Or it seems like radical democratization should really just be calling for an entire breakdown in culture writ large, that there are only niches, there are only individual things that you're into and that other people are into and maybe you could get into those other things you know talk to the fans of that and you can learn more about that and get in their world but it's really you know just like the point of view of any individual is not intrinsically better than the point of view of any other individual because we're all human beings with approximately in the grand scheme of things the same mental capacities uh, if you know if you follow that strictly democratic logic straight through then we certainly don't have high culture, low culture. I'm not even sure we have the distinction between art and the rest of activity. I'm not sure.
4: (laughs) Nice.
2: Maybe we're too close to it right now, too. Maybe that's part of it, right? Is where pop culture is something... When did we start using the term? It's a relatively newer term, right? So we tend to think, or at least I do, in my head, tend to think of pop culture as 1960s on up, which is incorrect. It could have occurred at any time, I assume. So maybe we're too close to it now to be able to really distinguish what is high and low culture within that, because that's not that much time. And also, because in the last several years, we have had access to so much information that anything could be considered, considered pop culture, what's going to be remembered as something that was popular? I reposted a video the other day of a rat on the New York City subway system that my friend had posted. At the time, there were like 97 views. And then this thing just had like thousands, right? I'm sure he wasn't the only person who posted it. But it ended up like in the New York Post the next day, where this rat basically slid down a pole inside the subway and looked like it was pole dancing. But that's popular today and would be considered, I assume, maybe in the pop culture type milieu for today, but not in a year from now or five years from now.
3: Maybe not, but at the same time, and this gets to this idea of canon, in some ways canon is what defines a trope, right? And I know I've already mentioned Die Hard, and I'll go back to it. This idea that Die Hard lives on in some ways because it became a thing that, well, now there's Die Hard on a plane, and there's Die Hard on a bus, and Die Hard in an elevator, and whatever, right? So it becomes a thing. Bubble Boy is still talked about, (laughs) and not... In the specific of whoever that little boy was who was in a bubble, and I don't know if it was a hoax or not, but this idea that you're going to try to bubble boy something, right? To do something kind of outrageous and possibly really dangerous in order to get a lot of views. So maybe not this particular rat, but you never quite know what's going to have that long-term traction. I'm not sure if I just made a case for bubble boy to be... Hi, bro. I'm going with it. I'm totally (laughs) planting my flag in that.
4: Well, and also you can post something that gets a 100 trillion views, but then becomes a flash in the pan and disappears in a year. The, The amount of views might yield you ad revenue and you might get a few more people paying attention to you for a short period of time. But unless you can sustain that level of wit and continue to extend that across the social sphere, it's not clear that that would stand the test of time. And and furthermore, at some point what becomes popular will shift relative to the people that are touting the notions of good art or good entertainment forward. I mean I was being facetious earlier. I think the canon has a very important place in the academic setting. And also, yes, what kind of created the foundations for certain uh, techniques and the way that we deliver art and things of that nature. And at the same time, total democratization does dissolve boundaries. That's just the nature of what it does. So we may be too close to it at this point, and the Internet is just now really kicking into high gear what everyone has access to.
1: Well, I know at least once a year I have to watch that old silent movie of the train that's coming right out of the screen at me. Yeah, that was a big thing at the time. (laughs)
3: I think in the long run, this distinction between high and low may not be one that has a lot of legs. I could be wrong. I think the distinction between what's pop and what isn't, or maybe what's pop and what should be or could be, seems a little bit more interesting to me. I know I already came up with the definition of pop, but in a, in a more realistic, right in my mind, it's, you know, what's everyone consuming? Everyone being a real mushy word to look at there, but, and I'm not sure there is any one thing that everyone is watching anymore. As anyone else on this discussion of watching Black Mirror, the very first episode, right, called National Anthem, the whole idea is that as a something of a performance art project, someone through coercion gets the prime minister of England to fuck a pig on live TV. And like the National Anthem gets everyone to stand, this piece of culture is the only thing that will get everybody in England and probably everybody in the world to all watch the same thing at the same time. I'm not sure what else there is in our world that makes us all watch. I mean, not to go from the sublime to the truly horrible, but I I feel like 9-11 was the last time we were all watching the same thing at the same time. And uh, our discussions can always go towards what are things that more of us either should be watching or could be watching, or what are we missing out on by not broadening our horizons a little bit or giving something a shot or going more than three episodes in on Netflix to really get hooked on something if it's that kind of thing or listening to an album more than one time to find out if you really like it.
1: That is the downside of universal access, is that having the patience to grasp something and figure out the entry points seems to be an art that is, well, hopefully one that we can salvage by ourselves (laughs) through this (laughs) podcast. Oh, and to answer uh, Erica's question, so just looking at my, my quick Wikipedia skills, the popular culture, the term started being used in the early 19th century. So there's an address from in 1818. I see. It is impossible to attain this end without founding the means of popular cultural instruction on a basis which cannot be got at otherwise than in a profound examination of man himself. Without such an investigation and such a basis, all is darkness. That is Johann Henrik. I don't care what that quote
3: was means. Some good work. Who was that fifth person who just joined us and
2: said that? <laughs> right. He's brilliant. Get him back. A
3: time traveler from the early 18th
1: century. Do you want the voices to come out? Is that what you're saying? Yes. We have completed our first episode. (laughs) I want the puppets to come out.
2: There is a popular culture, right? We can say there's a popular culture, but high and lowbrow, definitely up for debate.
1: The first stage in our plan is complete. (laughs) Farewell, everyone. Thank you. Good night.
4: Good night. Bye.
2: Good night. The train, the train is coming out of the
4: screen.
0: We're a high road cult, Ours ready to bolt And we're alienating today All the folks that are kin And the new ones coming Are as strange, yes as strange as they say After all the disaster. And tedious work Let's sit on our couches And play Captain Kirk Exploring terrain That we should recognize But everything's twisted Great out, magnify up all buttons on mash to turn all that binging to cash 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 so come the sin come all to the new culture pod have a laugh have a poke and prepare to be all
1: Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode, and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash Pop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.